0: I imagine uh, that some of you are expecting a sermon this morning on the birth of Christ since this is the last Sunday before Christmas, and we did that last year. Uh, If you remember, last year Christmas landed on a Sunday, and so we talked about the the birth narrative from the book of Luke, about the, the shepherds, the angels, this announcement, this invitation to come see this baby who would be a savior, but this year... Uh, We're simply continuing to walk through our sermon series that we've been doing in the gospel according to John. And providentially, our passage brings up a similar invitation. We'll actually be covering chapter 4, verses 1 through 42 this morning, but we'll see an invitation in verse 29. It's an invitation. It's not a declaration from a choir of holy angels, but it's a question. A question from a sinful yet hopeful outcast, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Not come and see a child, come and see a man. But what we find in both of these invitations, in both of these instances, is the same thing. And it is the message of Christmas that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We'll walk through this portion of John's Gospel in three sections each with two subsections, and it'll look something like this. First, Christianity isn't a cookie-cutter religion. Second, Jesus reveals and satisfies our deepest desire. And third, feed your soul by joining Jesus's mission. That's the plan this morning. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, we're grateful for an opportunity to gather And to settle our hearts and minds even for a brief period of time here this morning. To be reminded of why we set aside this time of year on our calendar. uh, To celebrate the incarnation and all that that means for us. Father, we pray uh, with great expectation. uh, Knowing that your spirit is here among us and that you are working in and through your word. Help us to understand so that we might leave here with a greater appreciation for your gospel. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Christianity isn't a cookie-cutter religion. We'll see this in verses 1 through 15. I hope you got a chance to make some Christmas cookies this season. Uh, Maybe you got to use some cookie cutters that are shaped like gingerbread man or like uh, Christmas trees or like uh, wreaths or whatever. It's just a real quick, effective way to make a whole bunch of cookies that are shaped the exact same way, that look the same. And maybe you're here as a guest this morning, and you kind of think, well, that's a pretty good appropriate analogy for Christianity in general. Uh, Christians all sort of look the same way, and in order for me to become a Christian, I need to fit some sort of certain mold. Uh, there's an expectation of what a Christian ought to look like or, or, or act like. And so. The theory goes, if I start to look like that, if I start to fit into that mold, whatever I think a typical Christian would do, well, then I can come to Jesus. That's not how it works. Let's follow Jesus this morning into this unexpected place with an encounter with an unexpected person. A, Jesus goes into unexpected places verses 1 through 6. I'll read it back into our hearing. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was the Sixth hour. So just before this passage, we heard that John the Baptist was uh, being questioned by some of his followers. Why is it that your followers, the people that have been following you and listening to your teaching now, are going after Jesus and listening to him and following him? John the Baptist is excited about it. That's the, how it's supposed to go. More people should be following Jesus. But this, this message about Jesus gathering followers now has reached the ears of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and We've seen already before that Jesus doesn't want any uh, attention from these religious leaders before its time. His hour had not yet come, and so he skips town, and so he's going to travel now back to where he came from, out of Judea, back towards Galilee. It's back to where he had turned that water into wine in chapter 2. And so the quickest, the most common way to get there would be to go through Samaria, Samaria. But there's bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. So sometimes the Jews would travel around that whole region. They would completely avoid it. They would go hundreds of extra miles over the Jordan and around, around, so that they would keep from being, having to to interact with these Samaritans. But Jesus and his disciples had to pass through Samaria, our text says. And so they stopped there in Samaria, and they're there resting and eating uh, it's, it's been established already in John's gospel from the beginning until now, in many times, in many ways, that Jesus is God. But here we get a helpful reminder that Jesus is also truly human. He is weary from this journey about halfway in, and so he's resting by this well at about noon. And it's not just any well. This is Jacob's well. This well has been there for like 1,800 years, At this point, when Jesus was meeting with this woman, the well actually is still there to this day. We've got a pretty good idea that this is exactly where it's at. Uh, They've built now an Eastern Orthodox church over the top of it, and apparently you can go and visit and still get a drink of that water yourself if you'd like. It's amazing to me that this well has lasted so long. This well was dug up out of the ground, and it is fed by an underground spring And so it's got this water that just sort of keeps coming up. Well, Jesus didn't avoid going into this unexpected place of Samaria. And now he's going to start a conversation with an unexpected person, B. Jesus offers life to unexpected people. I'll just read verse 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, We might also translate that last phrase there as Jews don't use dishes that Samaritans have used. So they wouldn't be using the same cup. Why was that? Well, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be ceremonially unclean. Uh, The Samaritans were kind of like distant cousins to the Jews. We need to kind of understand how they relate to one another to really appreciate what's happening here. Hundreds of years earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel was captured by the Assyrians, uh, and they exiled. They kicked out many of those Jews, and the Assyrians brought in their own pagan worship into the area. And over time, as Jews returned back to this area, they would mix that Assyrian pagan worship with the worship that they were familiar with as former Jews. And they had this sort of mixture of a religion that was a third thing. It wasn't exactly Judaism, but it was related. So they were distinct from the Jews in a couple of important ways. And the first one is this. They only affirmed the first five books of the Old Testament. So they rejected everything that came after it. There is no, there is no David, there is no Psalms, there is no prophets. None of that stuff matters for the Samaritans. Second, they established their own system of worship on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria. So the Jews from Jerusalem would have said, No, we need to be worshiping on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The Samaritans would say, No, it has, needs to be in Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Now, of course, the Samaritans would argue that they were the true followers of God. Uh, they had the oldest tradition, and they were worshiping in the right place. And they were waiting for a Messiah, the Samaritans were based on what they've read in Deuteronomy, that there was going to be a prophet who was going to come and teach and explain all things, this prophet who would be greater than Moses. And so this is their expectation. This prophet would come back, he would restore the 12 tribes of Israel together and explain and teach all things. Now those distinctions between these two people groups are important and Jesus plows right through them. He plows right through that wall of hostility that would have divided the Jews and the Samaritans. So not only did God send his son in order to break down the barrier between heaven and earth, but Jesus passes through geographical barriers and ethnic barriers and social barriers and spiritual barriers. Jesus would have had every excuse, every reason not to speak to this Samaritan woman at the well, but he strikes up with a conversation. Uh, A conversation that would change the course of this woman's life. Back to the text, verse 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw water with. The well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him "'will never be thirsty again. And "'The water that I will give him will become in him "'a spring of water welling up to eternal life.'" The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty "'or I have to come here to draw water.'" Uh, as is so common in John's gospel, we need to understand Jesus' words on two levels a physical level, and also a spiritual level. Running water, living water, is what he means by uh, living water. It's, it's, it's water that's not stagnant, not water that would come from a pond. It's the sort of water that you would want to drink, moving water, not uh, like a pond water that has like gross amoebas and stuff in it, tapeworms, but living water. And so that's what The woman at the well thinks that Jesus is talking about, that he's got this other great water that when you drink it, you never get thirsty again. She's thinking purely on a material level. She says, Jacob set up this living water here, this well, and it's been here for 2,000 years. You think you're better than him? What do you got? But Jesus begins to explain to her that he's not merely speaking on physical terms. This is what we need to understand this morning. He's speaking on a spiritual level. Remember, we've already read John's prologue. We've read verse 1 through 18 of chapter 1. We know that Jesus is the Word who has become flesh, that He is the eternal God entered into creation. We know that He has come to bring light and life to all. We know that He... He is the way that God the Father has loved the world by sending him into the world so that who would ever believe in him would would not perish, but have eternal life. We know this, but the Samaritan woman is just learning, and we're sort of watching this interaction, seeing how now she's interacting with Jesus based on this information that she's learning now in real time, and she's she's just not quite getting it yet. This conversation should remind us a little bit of what we saw with Nicodemus in chapter three. Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that you need to be born again, and Nicodemus does not understand that, and so he's thinking, well, how can you be physically born again? That makes no sense. And in the same way, this woman at the well is thinking, well, how could you have water that you only have to drink once? That doesn't make sense. Again, Jesus is not talking about a new source of water. This is not a new well that he's gonna give her directions to. This is important. Jesus is offering her baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is what the offer is. He's offering her baptism with the Holy Spirit. Remember, John baptizes with water. We read earlier in John's gospel, but there was one who was going to come after who had baptized with the Holy Spirit. And even Jesus' own words later in John chapter seven, Jesus himself stands up and cries out this, "'If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. "'For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said,' Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. After Jesus resurrects from the dead, he ascends back to the father at that point and then he, he sends the spirit. So we read about in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. And what we find then is that every believer at the beginning of his or her ex- uh, salvation experiences this the baptism of the holy spirit every disciple of jesus experiences this it's the way that jesus incorporates us into his church so when we drink the spirit we are drinking christ speaking spiritually here baptism with the holy spirit isn't signaled by speaking in tongues it is signaled by an inward assurance of salvation. When we receive the Spirit, it testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. So Jesus is trying to offer her eternal, abundant life, and she's, she's not understanding quite yet. She's just here because she was thirsty. She just wanted to drink. But Jesus is able to look underneath that thirst to find a deeper need under her felt need to her real need. She does desire water, yes, but she has a deeper desire that she might herself not even fully understand. Second, Jesus reveals and satisfies our deepest desire. A, our sin is a misdirected thirst. I'll read for us verse 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman had answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And so Jesus now is shifting this conversation to help her understand what her deeper thirst and longing is. And he can do this because he knows what's in the heart of man. He strategically brings up her living situation by asking her to bring her husband to join the conversation. And she responds truthfully by saying that she does not have a husband and Jesus knows there's more there and so he begins to reveal something to her that a complete stranger would have no business knowing. It is true that she doesn't have a husband at the moment but she's had five so far and she's not even married to the man that she's living with now. Uh, that, that fact might explain why she had come to the well on her own in the middle of the day rather than with another other group of women in the morning hours. Perhaps her reputation had made her a bit of, a, of an outcast. We don't want to read too far into to what's happening here. We don't know the reasons that these five marriages ended. We don't know why she's chosen to cohabitate with a boy who won't commit to her. But Jesus has revealed a deeply sensitive area for this woman. He's showing her that she has a thirst that isn't just for water, that her thirst is a desire for companionship with a man. And that desire has led her into sin. Cohabitation is increasingly common today as people are delaying or rejecting marriage altogether, And it appears justifiable, it almost seems wise even, in the way that it's discussed today. It's more practical to live together because there's only one mortgage payment, rent's expensive, or uh, shouldn't we be uh, doing like a dress rehearsal to find out if this would even work long-term? But statistically, those who cohabitate before marriage are twice as likely to end in divorce. It's a fine example of worldly wisdom from below. But well, we don't know, ultimately, the reason that she decided to live with this man who is not her husband. But Jesus went straight to the heart of her spiritual condition by carefully shining a light into that dark area of her soul. Here is where your thirst is. And don't get it twisted. It's not as if her desire for companionship in and of itself was wrong, but she allowed that thirst to lead her into sin. And that applies just as well for the man that she was living with, looking for love in all the wrong places. So what desires, what thirsts might you have that are not inherently wrong, they are not inherently sinful, but you're allowing you to lead you into sin? Financial or relational, spiritual, Maybe you could ask it this way if Jesus met you at the water cooler, how would he begin a conversation with you? Well, Jesus doesn't just reveal the depth of her misguided desire in order to shame her or to make himself feel better about himself. The conversation continues. B The greatest satisfaction is communion with God. I'll read verses 19 through 26. The woman says to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this this man that she's run into at the water well has just exposed and explained her heart to herself. He must be a prophet. And this is where the religious tension that we explained earlier between the Samaritans and the Jews really comes to the front of the conversation. Remember, the Samaritans only affirm the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the Samaritan Old Testament, it says that the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, worshipped on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. It is the mountain that they would have been able to have seen as they're standing there at Jacob's well. But the Jews, who would follow the rest of the Old Testament as God was still speaking and revealing, knew that the appropriate, proper place for worship was Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So there's this age-old point of geographical and theological confusion and disagreement. And the Samaritans were expecting a Messiah who would be like Moses, only better, who would come and teach and explain all things. And so she's thinking, if this guy can exegete my heart, maybe he can explain this question. If you're a prophet, answer me this. Where is God-honoring worship supposed to take place? And his response is fascinating. Verse 22, he says, the Samaritans worship what they do not know. Uh, In in other words, he is saying they, they have not been receiving and affirming God's revelation as it has been coming to them. They've been rejecting it. So they were worshiping sincerely, but they were worshiping in ignorance, worshiping what they did not know. And so he affirms that the Jews are correct. The Jews are correct. Salvation is from the Jews, he says. So in other words, they are the vehicle through which God is revealing his will. Jerusalem was the true temple where God's presence would uniquely dwell. But he only touches on this very briefly because he brings up something that's actually more important. He says this, a time is quickly coming when worship is no longer going to be isolated to a particular geographical location. So this thing that we're so confused about with mountains is not going to matter for very long. The hour was coming and John always uses that to refer to his crucifixion and his glorification. That hour was coming when all the temples were going to be pointless. These temples don't matter anymore. Remember, chapter 2, he judged the temple in Jerusalem. And what did he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And the Pharisees are confused. What are you talking about? How could you rebuild this? It took us 40 years to build it. He wasn't talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. Jesus is himself the embodiment of the presence of God, which is what the temple was meant to be. This revolutionary statement comes from the lips of Jesus, and it's this, true worshipers... Who honor and glorify the only God who exists aren't bound to do so at a particular time or a particular place. With Jesus' arrival, all that temporary temple stuff, all that that pointed to, you, had finally arrived. True worshipers worship the Father now in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. What does spirit mean? What does spirit mean? Well, it says God is spirit in verse 24. Uh, which we take to, to mean that he is immaterial. He is, he's not physical. He doesn't have a body. He's not bound to a particular geographical location. So the Spirit, I think we can say this in these terms, the Holy Spirit is the proper place for true worship. After Jesus would, would rise with healing in his wings and he sends the Holy Spirit, God would make his home in us, which is the new temple members of Christ's body are the true simple it's not a building it's not a mountain and so that that living water that bubbling brook of the Holy Spirit wells up now within believers stirring God honoring worship within us and then as a consequence our whole lives are given as an act of worship which is holy and acceptable before God worship in spirit and worship in truth what does truth mean What is truth? I want to suggest that it means worshiping according to God's revelation. Remember, the Samaritans were worshiping sincerely, but in ignorance. They didn't know what they were doing. Worshiping in truth means responding sincerely based on God's revelation. This is how worship happens. Those who worship God can only do so in response to his revelation of himself to us. He reveals himself. We respond to that. That is the rhythm of worship. And God's ultimate revelation of himself is through Jesus Christ, who is the word become flesh. He is the prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the truth. And so to summarize what this is communicating to us, to worship in spirit and truth means to glorify God the Father, through God the Son, in God the Spirit. This is worshiping in spirit and in truth. The greatest gift that this woman needed to to receive was to know God as he is. And true worship always reflects that Trinitarian nature of God, that the Father originates, that the Son purchases, that the Spirit effects in our hearts and lives. The Father is seeking those who would worship him in this way. I'm convinced, along with Augustine, that our sin which clings so closely comes from a disordered love, disordered, distorted loves. Isaiah made the same point 900 years before this conversation with the woman at the wells we heard in our call to worship text. We spend our money and our labor and our time and our energy on things that do not satisfy. We doom scroll on our phones in order to scratch an itch that we don't even fully even understand. And all the while, God is inviting us to come and drink, to come and eat, to find what it is that we truly need. Do you consider yourself a spiritually minded person? Do you think of yourself as having a desire or a longing that you can't quite explain? Um, some sort of a desire to connect with an intelligent being beyond yourself? The father is seeking those who would worship him and your response to that longing ought to be to seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek him while he is near. Friends, who knows when or if you'll ever hear an offer of the gospel again. Don't harden your heart. Let's chat in the lobby after the service. The spiritual thirst that we can't explain is explained in the gospel and can only be quenched in spirit and in truth. The Samaritan woman's not the kind of person that you might think of as being a Christian. She's not, a, she's not like Ned Flanders. If you were trying to picture somebody who would be a convert, this woman at the well would not be it. And yet Jesus goes into this unexpected place to meet with this unexpected person to reveal her need and to offer her satisfaction that meets that need. The father was seeking that woman and Jesus found her. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, that he finds everyone who the father has given to him. That's the whole point of this encounter. Jesus found a worshiper. Is he seeking after you? It's evident that she has become a worshiper from the way that she is turning now and running to invite others to have their own encounter with Christ. Third, feed your soul by joining Jesus' mission. We'll go from verse 27 through 42 in this. But first, A, this outcast becomes an unlikely evangelist. Let me just read verses 27 through 30 now. Just then his disciples come back they're marveling that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek why are you talking with her so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see a man who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ and so they went out of the town and they were coming to him so the disciples had left they went to go find food and they come back now and they see Jesus is in the middle of this conversation with the Samaritan woman and they're shocked they don't interrupt they let him finish but it's shocking because he's talking to this woman who is a stranger who is a Samaritan who is a woman and when this conversation ends this woman leaves to spread the word and in her excitement our text tells us she forgot the reason why she even came to the well that she left her water jar behind she runs into town. She begins to tell others about this encounter with this man at the well. And now she's inviting others to go check this out for themselves. You've got to go here. You have to hear this message. And so now the Samaritans are coming out of the town and they're coming now to the well to interact with Jesus and to hear more. They want to hear from this Jewish traveler who's explaining the things of God and offering this spiritual satisfaction. Let's just think about this in contrast briefly briefly. To the interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus in chapter three was a teacher of Israel. He knows scripture. He's a devout religious Drew who is he, he's intentionally seeking out Jesus in order to learn more about him. If there was a cookie cutter image of a convert, Nicodemus would have been it, but he came to Jesus at night. Remember, he came in the darkness, which we might take to signify his ignorance about who Jesus is. And yet here we have this Gentile woman who was not looking for anything except for a drink of water. But here she is at noon in broad daylight and she's now beginning to understand who Jesus is. And she immediately wants to tell others about it who also, as a result, begin to believe. And if we skip down to verse 39 through 42... That's what we read. Chapter 4, verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is a model for us in evangelism, isn't it? She definitely, of course, has a unique testimony. But here's the thing. Her, her testimony might be more dramatic than yours, but it's no less miraculous. Her method of evangelism is not complicated. It's quite simple. She just goes to tell other people about this amazing encounter that she's had with Jesus. Let me tell you about what happened to me. This this man understands my experience. He understands my heart even better than I understand it myself. And she tells others, and it piques their interest, and they come to hear from Jesus for themselves, and they believed, it says. They believed the Christmas message that Jesus is the Savior of the world. What if you run into someone who's thirsty? for communion with God, but just doesn't understand the offer of living water? What do you do? What if someone is dying to know, and you have the opportunity to give that message of the gospel? What if someone needs to know who Jesus really is, but it really just hasn't had the opportunity? Uh, William Wilberforce was a parliamentarian in England. He was behind uh, England's rejection of the slave trade. He was a devout Christian who loved evangelism, always looking for ways to share the gospel with people, and he had a journal of the names of family members and friends and strangers, acquaintances, people that he had met. He would write down their name, and then he would write down little ways that he might plan to interact with them based on the gospel, and he called these little notes launchers, launchers, uh, ways that he would be able to launch into spiritually-minded conversations. Do you have any launchers? I love this concept. As you, you can just speak to someone about the fact that you went to church when they ask you what you did over the weekend. You can include that, not being ashamed. Or maybe you could just ask questions about someone's life and genuinely pay attention and care. Maybe you could ask them what they believe and then just let them explain it and just and just Listen ask good questions maybe you could offer to read through and discuss a Christian book together with someone or maybe you could just invite them to meet other Christians to find out that not everybody is a cookie cutter Christian we'll have a class later in the spring to touch on more of this and we'll hear more of this throughout John's gospel but keep that category of launchers in your mind and be looking for opportunities throughout this Christmas season tomorrow perhaps even or tonight to be able to offer this living water to someone who's looking and doesn't know that they're looking. As joyful as this Samaritan woman was, I imagine that her joy was actually doubled by the fact that others were joining in the joy of finding Jesus to be satisfying to them as well. Have you known that joy? Have you known the joy of sharing the gospel with someone? Christian, that is, that is the mission that we have been called into, invited into. Let's go back just to verse 31. Let's listen to this conversation between Jesus and his disciples from verses 31 through 38, where we see that obedience and joy go together. Verses 31 to 38, chapter 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say that yet there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Have you ever had a conversation like that? A sort of a deep spiritual conversation that actually makes you forget, you sort of lose track of time. The woman at the well forgot she was even thirsty after this conversation. And Jesus himself forgot that he was even hungry uh, after this conversation. The disciples come back and like, dude, you need to eat. And he's like, I, I've i I've, I've eaten, I'm full. Like, What are you talking about? Did you call DoorDash while we were out? Did you, you didn't get any food. You guys aren't getting it. Think about this on a deeper level. He explains to his disciples that he finds great satisfaction, he finds great nourishment in obeying the, the will of the Father in order to accomplish the work that he has been given. And then he gives a brief, a brief lesson, a little parable, this analogy between evangelism and a harvest. And here's the principle. If you, if you put the work into planting seeds, You want to be the one who is harvesting the fruit of that. You'd you'd be sad if someone else took the fruit of your labor. That makes sense. But this is different. Jesus says in evangelism, both the one who plants the seed and the one who reaps the fruit are going to rejoice together, sharing in that together. It's a win win. And you don't need to wait until spring or fall to begin this harvest, it's always gospel season. And so the Samaritan woman gets the joy of reaping fruit that she didn't even need to plant. She's just inviting others into the joy of worshiping God in spirit and truth. And whether we think about the one who has planted the seed that she is reaping as as John the Baptist who had spoken in this area, prepared the soil, or as the Holy Spirit who has gone before her in this conversation, the conclusion is the same for us. Our fruitfulness in sharing the gospel with others is only possible because of the work of those who have come before us. Uh, Others have labored, and we have entered into their labor. It's possible that you'll plant a seed that you'll never see the fruit of in this life. That's okay, because you're not responsible for the fruitfulness, but you are responsible for your obedience. And Jesus' words here remind his disciples, and it reminds us, that when the harvest is fully taken in, both those who sow and those who harvest will rejoice together. Joy is found in obedience to the Father's will. And in this particular instance, sowing and reaping by inviting others to come and see a man. Come and see a man, not just any man. This man is the Messiah. This man is the word made flesh. He is the holy creator. He is the friend of sinners. Here's our key takeaway from this passage. Satisfy your soul in God and invite others to follow without discrimination. Satisfy your soul in God and invite others to follow without discrimination. You never know if you might be the unlikely evangelist who brings an unexpected person to faith so that they too might praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. Let's pray.